All right. Today I'm speaking about having a servant heart. Who's heard a message on having a servant heart before? Well, this is good. There's a couple of people here. Well, this is another one on having a servant heart. And why are we preaching on this? Because it's important to have a servant heart as a follower of Christ. Um, in this day and age in which we live, it's all about me. It's not all about James. It's all about me being you. Everything that is bombarded in our lives in the outside world is all focused at you and what you want and what you need and what you're prepared to do. We're a very um, self-centric generation. Not just this generation, but generations before us as well. And we look at everything through the, the, the filter of self, me. You look at advertising. What's advertising about? It's about telling you how important you are. You need this. You have to have this. And then the language slightly changes where you go, Mum, I need this new iPad. I need this new i-whatever. I need, I need, I need. But don't worry, I'm not even just talking about the kids here. I'm talking about adults. I need that promotion. I need this. I need that. I, 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 I. And of course, I'm the only person who speaks like this. None of you great people here refer to yourself as I need, I want. I shouldn't have to. Let's be honest. Is anyone can be honest here for a moment? Has anyone maybe not said that out loud, but said it to themselves? I shouldn't have to do this. I deserve this. I need this. As you get older, you realize, well, not everyone, but as you get older, you realize that it's not socially acceptable within the Christian realm to say, I want. But it doesn't mean that you're not thinking it. You're not feeling it. And the really painful thing about all this is that we are so, so focused on self is that the Bible pretty much tells us to do exactly the opposite of all this, which is what our culture is actually reflecting that we should be doing. What we should be doing is actually putting God first. Not putting expectations and demands on Him. He needs to be at the center. We need to die to self. What is a servant? A servant is someone that puts aside their needs and their wants to serve another and put their needs and their wants first. It's very basic, but who knows that that basic thing is very hard to do. Yes? Very hard to do. So today, we I've got 17 pages here. Don't worry, I, I won't be using it all. I just don't want them to fly away on me. Um, it could take the rest of the sermon for me to get my notes put back together again if I lose them. Um, so today we're going to be speaking about Naaman. Who's heard of Naaman before? Naaman was a great warrior of his time and uh, he unfortunately got leprosy. And this is his story. We're not going to just look at Naaman's story, but the characters that are within that story. And it's interesting that through all this story of his journey, there are so many actual servants that 
are in this story that we need to take note of. And I find in my Bible, I don't know about yours, but there is two types of people generally in the Bible. There's people that respond correctly and do the right things that we can learn from. And then there's the other people that have the same opportunities as those people but make the wrong decisions. And these are two lessons we can learn. We can either learn to do the right thing or the wrong thing. My fear at the end of my life is how many things am I, is the Lord going to look over my life and say, hey, you made the right choices, you had a servant heart or you went to serve yourself. And this is a question that we need to ask ourselves and in this story we're going to see some great examples of both of those things from different characters in this story. So let's turn to 2 Kings 5. Get your Bibles out or your pieces of paper with that scripture already printed out on it. Unfortunately, I'm not tech savvy enough to be able to get a PowerPoint put together. It would take me about six hours to do a PowerPoint for you guys, so you're going to have to look it up. I thought I'd spend that time on my sermon. So it's 2 Kings 5, verse number 1. This is just giving me a bit of a backstory to who Naaman is. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, A-R-A-M, is that how you say it? Would you say it like that, Peter? Aram? They'll do. Um, was a great man with his master and, a highly respe- and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Armin. The man also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. So Aram is now known as Syria, just to give you a bit of a historical update and the interesting thing I find here is it says the Lord was with Naaman the interesting thing is that Ammon was actually one of the the countries that had conflict with Israel and who are the Israelites the Israelites are God's chosen people but for some reason we have this section in history where the Lord is actually with the enemy of the Israelites. That's interesting, don't you think? I think that's pretty interesting. And I think as we go through the story, we'll kind of discover that maybe Israel wasn't really on cue with what God was trying to do. And uh, God was actually using other countries around them to maybe get them on the right path. But nonetheless, so Naaman was a man that had great skill. It says that the Lord was with him, but obviously Naaman was thinking, hey, I'm doing all these really great things. I'm having a lot of conquests here. I'm kicking butt. I'm taking everyone down. The king loves me. And it's all because I'm awesome. I'm great. I'm like Conan the Barbarian times 10. I'm like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the 80s. Okay? I'm buff. I'm kicking goals, chopping heads bringing back the booty for the king. The king loves me. I'm the main man. There's nothing I can't do. I'm unstoppable. And then something happens. This unstoppable man gets leprosy. Do you think his skill set, his personality, his influence with the army is going to get him out of this? It's not. Who knows about leprosy here? 
We've got one, two, three, four, five people, six people that know about leprosy. It's obviously a disease of the Bible we hear a lot about. We don't hear a lot about leprosy now. But it's a pretty horrible thing. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail because the kids here, and they probably love it too much. But pretty much the way it goes is it starts with some spots and some scabs. And then more spots and scabs. And then eventually the spots and scabs all join together. And then you're just one big spotty, scabby thing. Has anyone seen the original The Fly? Not the original, the 1980 The Fly. That's terrible. I won't bring that up. But it's probably a pretty good analogy of um, what starts to happen. After you've covered from head to toe and spots have joined together, they're all pussy and scabby and turn white, then things start becoming loose. Got to make sure I'm not going into too much detail here. But So fingernails become loose and they fall out. Teeth become loose. Hair becomes loose. And so on and so forth. And then body parts start dropping off. Okay? So just to give you context here, there was no cure for leprosy. Basically, if you had leprosy, it was only a matter of time. But it wasn't just the fact that you would die from leprosy, it was the fact of how society saw you and the way you'd be treated. So let's get a bit of a, a big picture of what's just happened to Naaman here. He is king of the hill. He is the man of the hour. All the gossip magazines are covering off on who the latest kid on the block is that's got all these victories. He's top 10, man. He's kicking goals. Socially, he's at the top of his game. Everyone loves him. He's doing well. Great family, the whole deal. And now he has leprosy, which takes him from up here to right down to the very, very, very bottom of the social list. Not only does he have leprosy, he's a social leper. Or could be, or will be, is on, on, the, on the way to being. So it's not looking good for Naaman, is it? It's looking terrible. So amongst all this great stuff that was going on, potentially at some point in time, he's actually going to probably have to leave his home definitely leave his station of being the leader of the king's army and will probably have to go off into a cave and be isolated from his family and friends and die a lonely death. It's pretty bleak, isn't it? Yep. Who wants to die a lonely death? No. (laughs) No, we don't. Let's go down to verse 2. Now, this is giving a bit more context to the background of what's going on. Now, the Armenians had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of the leprosy. And Naaman went and told his master, saying, Thus and thus, spoke the little girl who is from the land of Israel. So just to give a bit of uh, context, what was going on, there would have been bands of marauders or in modern day context for the kids, pirates, but not out on the water. 
They were um, low lives, most likely, or people of ill character. And what they'd do is they'd head off out of their, their city and their country and they'd go to the outskirts of other countries and they'd kidnap people. They'd steal them. Parents. <laughs> Some parents might not give the right answer to this. How would you like it if your child was stolen from you? It'd be terrible, in all seriousness. Your child has been taken from you. Now, it says a little girl. We don't know how little the girl was. She may have been nine. She may have been 16. Who really cares? The fact is that a family member was stolen and essentially is going to become a slave in another country. That's pretty upsetting. Imagine how that girl was feeling. I mean, I've heard this story a million times, and to be honest with you, in Sunday school and in, even in sermons, I've never really thought about the fact that this child is stolen from her parents and probably will never see her parents again and is sold into slavery. Do you think this girl may need some counselling? Do you think she may need some biblical counselling from one of us? I think so. I think she's a key candidate <coughs> to be offended and upset and could be saying some I things. I deserve better than this. I feel this is not fair. And would she be warranted in thinking that? On one level, you'd say yes, wouldn't you? But obviously, she's not thinking this way. There's a couple of indicators that she's not thinking this way. She's been brought into um, Naaman's house and she's serving there. So let's break this down. She's obviously got a good attitude. Now you say, James, how can you come to this conclusion? Well, the fact is the moment that she finds out that her master is, is sick and has leprosy and is definitely going to die, what's her response? She wants to help. She has an answer to this unanswerable question. So there must be some kind of favour there. There must be some kind of connection, some kind of love that she's decided in her heart that she's not going to focus on the wrongs that have been done to her, but she's going to make the most of where she is to the point that she genuinely has a servant heart and wants to serve who is her master, which is Naaman. I don't know about you, but the other scenario that could have happened with this girl is she could have gone, yes, Naaman has leprosy. Awesome. Our enemies have leprosy. He's the captain of the army. How great would it be and what a a vengeance of my God to do this, to give the whole army leprosy. You know that we could actually ourselves sometimes can look at situations and we can say, well, that's um, God's hand, you know, operating in that situation and they're obviously bad and sinful people and God's put this upon them, put this upon them. And I don't agree with that theology totally. I, I think that it's a dangerous theology, but she obviously doesn't go that way. She decides to actually help Naaman and give some insight into situation. The other interesting thing that I find is that obviously Naaman's household had a great affinity for this little girl. Because let's, let's, let's just go with, I don't know what the age is, but let's say she's, let's even say she's 16, which is very young in that society. The family actually stop and listen to her. They give her the time to listen to what she says and then Naaman goes to the king basis on the words of a little girl. There could be a couple of things going on here. There could be a lot of desperation. 
there's no answer, I'm willing to try anything. But they obviously have spent the time to listen to her. So she obviously had great favour in the house. Let's go down to verse 5 as I uh, get another sip of styrofoam. Then the king of Aram said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king. And he departed and took with them ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may cure him of leprosy. That you may cure him of leprosy. And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. How would you like to be the king at that point in time? I don't think the king wanted to be the king at that point in time. (laughs) I find it interesting here that to me it actually sounds like the king has sent this letter and he's under the misunderstanding that the king of Israel is actually the prophet and that he himself is going to perform the healing. It's interesting with the kings that have preceded King David, King Solomon, at different junctures in time, other countries had rumoured them to be prophets. So it's quite likely that he actually did think that the king was a prophet and would be able to to heal him. But um, the king, obviously, by the tearing of the clothes, was not getting ready to launch into his healing ministry quite yet just to give you a bit of an idea of money wise of how much money the king had sent on the behalf of Naaman was 10 talents of silver how big do you think a talent of silver is hold up your hand and show me how big a talent is we've got someone over here who's going this much who else that much that much what's a talent I always envisioned that it was a coin But then again, until doing this sermon, I wasn't that educated on coins and money and the monetary system of that time, but I've become mildly more educated so I can communicate some concepts to you. So in the Strong's Concordance, it says one talent of silver weighed 91 pounds. Now, for those of you who aren't into pounds, that's about 41 kilograms. Okay, so my gentleman at the back was right by going like this. So you think about it, 91 kilos is one talent. Can you imagine the size of Naaman's wallet? (laughs) It's going to be pretty big. So that's just the silver. So there's, in total, there is 410 kilos worth of silver. Is that blowing your mind? It's blowing my mind. By the way, I'm talking. I mean, wow. A hundred, that's just, that's just the silver. And if we go and read about 
He bought uh, 6,000 shekels of gold and a shekel, three shekels equals one, one ounce and, and so on and so forth. So one, uh, 12 troy ounces equaled a pound, which in total means that the amount of gold that they had was 75 kilos. So we're pushing up 500 kilos of payment here. 500 kilos. That's pretty, that's a lot. So in today's value ballpark, that was $1.2 million. $1.2 million. So what the king, and I can imagine back then that was a lot of money, because it's a lot of money now. But you go back then, that would have been a lot of money. And basically what this is saying, this is the value that the king has put on Naaman. It's a lot of money. You know, the great thing for us in today, in today in, now for us is that as Christians, is that at a greater price, more than 1.2 million has been paid for us. God sent his only son to die on the cross for us, for our sins, for the things that we did wrong. How powerful is that? It's something that we can take for granted, but we're worth way much more than 1.2 million. So, I don't know about you and the storybooks when you've read this story before, if you have, you can sort of see Naaman on a donkey and maybe with another servant and they're travelling off on their trip to go deal with this situation and get healed. But the truth is that that is not what would have happened. You're carrying around $1.2 million. You're going to need a caravan of of probably horses, donkeys, maybe some camels, to carry just the gold itself. So you're going to head out into the middle of nowhere with $1.2 million when you're in an area that is prone to war? No, you're not. So the likelihood is that he would have travelled with a garrison. He may have travelled with his whole army. I'm not sure. But he definitely would have had more than one or two people with him. And once again, this isn't just jumping in the car and driving an an hour interstate. This is a journey that would take time. So he's got food, provisions, servants with him, which we refer to later on. So this is quite a horde of people that are coming up to the king's doorstep. And if he indeed did have his army with him or a garrison with him, the king of Israel could be a little bit nervous about what was going to take place. Okay, we've got a garrison, we've got an army of people. Rock up on the front doorstep, the letter's handed over. And basically, you think about what the, what's going on in the king's head. He's been asked to do the impossible. No one's been healed from leprosy. And now the king has just written this casual letter saying, hey, can you just fix this guy up for us? We really appreciate it. And the king's going, this is the way that countries start fights ask something of me that i cannot give to you when i don't give it to you you go and wail on me you take me down and you've got an army with you so i don't think the king at that point in time because we don't get an idea of time scale here i don't think the king read the letter and started ripping his clothes off probably said hey could i just take a moment please just want to have a bit of a moment to myself and have a talk to some of my advisors. And he walked in the back room. It's like, oh my God! And he starts ripping his clothes off. Very cool, very king-like. 
He's under control. <laughs> no, I'm fine now. You imagine what's going on with all this in Naaman's head. What's Naaman thinking at this point in time? Naaman's probably switched on guy and he's thinking, geez, this is kind of probably not going exactly how I thought it was going to go. There was no hand waving. There was no, oh, not a problem. Yeah, let's just take care of this now. Yay, verily. Put his hand up, put his hand on his head, pushed him back, slayed him in the spirit in his heel. None of this is happening. So Naaman's standing there going, oh, you know, he's picking up a bit of a vibe that this, this probably isn't coming together. So in the meantime, what happens is that the prophet, the actual prophet, finds out what's happened. The king's ripping his clothes off. There's a bit of a scenario going on. Now, the fact is that the prophet didn't live next door. It may have been a few hours. It may have been even a few days that it took word to get to him. He's in Syria. Not Syria, sorry. Where is he? He's Samaria, sorry. It may have taken a few days to get him. So what's happening at this point in time, you've got the, the army, they're out there camping on the front lawn and you've got Naaman there. You haven't really got a distinct answer by the sounds of things. He's saying, look, just give us a bit of time. We're working on this. Just go out there and just take a bit of a break. And Naaman is thinking to himself, oh man, this has been a big mistake. I've got to stop listening to little girls about you know, leprosy. This is not good. And I think that whereas he probably would have started off on his journey quite excited about the potential of what was going to happen that he's got to a point where he's doubting whether God is going to show up in this situation. I think there's been times for all of us that we may have believed one thing quite valiantly. We might have even said things, things to people, I'm believing, I'm believing. And then there's those times where things don't look like they're coming together how we plan them that they come together. And it's those times that we do need to take heart and trust that God is still with us, regardless of whether our perceived circumstances aren't behaving the way we thought they would. Let's go down to verse 8. And it happened when Elijah, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel, that God is with us, is what he's saying. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elijah. So... You think to yourself, why didn't the king, when this situation came to him, just refer to Elijah? Has anyone got any reasons why they think that might have been? I'm interested. Just I'm open. This is a safe place. You can talk in church. Does anyone have an idea? Come on, just whack it out there. No one. <laughs> no one. Am I hearing murmurings? No murmuring, just talking amongst one, one another, okay. Well, I think that Naaman would have been excited by this. This potential now that the king obviously hasn't been able to meet his needs. I believe that the king had actually 
forgotten that there was a prophet in his midst. I think it suggests that the king was traveling for so long without the guidance of God, doing his own thing, that he actually forgot that there was a prophet amongst them. Does that sound like a good theory? There's got to be a reason why the king didn't just say, hey, look, that's not a problem. We have a prophet, go and see him. That was not his first port of call. The tearing of the clothes was his first port of call. Once again, some of us can do the tearing of the clothes thing before making a port of call to the person who has the answer. Who's done that? That $1,050 bill that's come in for the electricity and you weren't even there for a month of that time? Oh man, what are we going to do? That's my paycheck for the week. I do that. And what we need to do is we need to actually go to God and say, God, you are my provider. You can meet this need. But it's very a natural thing that we do that we don't actually go to him first. So anyway, the king's probably feeling pretty good about the situation now, going, great, I can move them out of here and off the front lawn of the palace. All those guys can go down and check out what's going down there and uh, Elijah will take care of them. So the king gives them directions. They head off down there. And this is what happens down there. After Elijah has saved the bacon of the king, Elijah sent out a message to him. So there's Naaman with all of his guys waiting at the front door. And Elijah sends out a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean but Naaman was furious and went away and said behold I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper are not Abra and Prefer sorry <laughs> the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters in Israel? Could I not wash them, uh, wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. <laughs> I wonder what happened when the king heard back after Elijah says, hey, look, don't worry, send him to me, I'll take care of him. Oh, we dodged a bullet on that one. Imagine when the king heard that Elijah didn't even come out. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine how the king's going, oh man, this is not good. <laughs> he takes this guy off my hands and then he just totally disrespects him. But he knew what he was doing. I really believe that God wanted to uncover a couple of things and wanted to do a couple of things in Naaman's life. One, I believe, is to heal him of his leprosy, but also to deal with pride. He was a man of great stature. He was a man that was a warrior, respected in his community, second to the king, the right-hand man. And it would have been known in Israel the power that this soldier, this general had. Elijah would have known, but he sent out a messenger. Once again, in a household, you've got the person who's the head of the household and at the very bottom of that list is a servant. Once again, Naaman doesn't want to be hearing a message, a message from a servant. He wants the main guy. 
And I found it really interesting. I don't know if it's where I'm at at the moment or, or, or whatever, but once again, no one has expectations of how God is going to function in this situation. He says himself, I thought he was going to wave his hands over me and then the healing would come. So he's actually put expectations of God how he's going to actually work in this situation. But he doesn't do that. And it's exactly the same for people that were here last week who heard my message on Mary and Martha. Martha's ticked with God because he's not operating the way she thinks he should be operating. She's not responding the way to her agenda. She gets upset with him and exactly the same thing has happened here. He didn't tell me what to do, what I thought he'd tell me to do and he's telling me something different and I'm essentially, says, I'm better than that. Why are you getting me to wash in one of the dirtiest rivers around? If it was a matter of washing, I could have washed in one of my own cleaner water sources. And he's enraged. Enraged is pretty, pretty scary stuff. That's not mad. Enraged is like on the verge of, would you say, out of control? So he's out of control about this and, and very disappointed in the way that he's being treated. I find a really interesting thing going on here, which would have been a little bit nerve-wracking, which another thing in my Sunday school books, I didn't really pick up on this, but it then says that his servants came around him and actually did a bit of biblical counselling. They didn't jump in there and say, man, you're right, you should be mad, man, you know, you should be furious. They actually had the nerve to actually say, well... Maybe um, if the prophet asked you to do something amazing, you would have done it. But he's just asking you to do something really simple. Maybe you should try that. And you kind of take that for granted that a bit of information has been passed to him and that he'll act on that. But really what's going on there is, once again, is a servant heart of those servants. I mean, you think about your boss is in a rage. He may have even pulled out his sword as he was sort of walking along being really furious, and you're going to yourself, well, it's probably not the time to raise the whole thing of maybe you're not responding the right way or, you know, maybe you could just go in the dirty water and stop carrying on like a Nancy boy. But they loved him that much that they were willing to risk the fury that may come down on them to actually communicate a truth that was really pointing out the fact that he had pride. So I'll just read verse 13, which is what I've just gone over really. Then his servants came near and spoke to him saying, My father, which is a term of love there, had the prophet told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. So not only was he healed, he was actually fully restored. For us older people, how much would we like uh, to go for a dip seven times and be fully restored looking young and spunky. 
So getting down to the to, to the heart of, of what I believe was the real issue here was not only was the healing a part of what was going on here for him, but was to also deal with Naaman's pride and also to see how great God actually was. Because at that point in time, Naaman wasn't a follower of, of the Lord, which is really interesting for me that the Lord was with him regardless, which is an interesting theological you know, thing to think about is that the Lord can be with people that aren't saved. But the Lord wanted to reveal himself in a real way. So, verse 15. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules loads of earth, for your servant will no more offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rehoboam to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rehoboam, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. So we can see that Naaman now has a revelation of who God is and the power that God has in his life and in his circumstance. He has declared it. He's declared it in front of his men. So there's real power in this moment that he's drawing a line in the sand. He tries to give a gift. There's no gift received. Now, we don't know the full reason for why that gift isn't received. Perhaps because Elijah wanted to make the point that your healing can't be bought. Um, that it wasn't about him. And I like that with Elijah actually sending him off to get dipped in the water seven times. I mean, for argument's sake, there's no reason why he, the prophet could have gone down and actually dipped him himself seven times himself. I mean, that would look pretty good, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, you know, I was uh, letting God work through me and dipped him in that water. I wonder if, uh, in part, if he actually knew that God would get all the glory because he actually wasn't there. And then there's a, an interesting thing that, okay, I want to give you all this stuff. He says, no. And then he turns around and says, can I have some dirt? Can I have some dirt? That's kind of the natural thing, progression in a conversation is, Peter, will you take this? No, look, mate, don't worry about it. Well, can I have some dirt? Can we just pull some up out of the front yard? Is that all right? It's kind of a little bit of a strange request. The likelihood is that, in essence, what he's actually saying is that he actually wants to take some of Israel with him. He wants to take God with him. He may have actually went back home. It's the likelihood he may have laid out that dirt and actually built an altar to God on that dirt. Set aside a place in his home for God to dwell. 
And then he sort of does a bit of a proviso and something that he's concerned about. God's working in his heart already. And he says, look, I serve a king. He worships other gods. And he's talking about having his, his hand on his arm. We're not really talking physically about that. He's basically saying, I'm the right-hand man to this guy, so I'll be in the temple. I'll have to bow down, but, you know, I'm still acknowledging the gods that the may one. And it's funny because not that the prophet approves of this, but he doesn't address it. I just find it interesting that obviously the prophet maybe has made the, the call that God's doing a work in this guy's heart. And then in time, maybe something... We'll change in that area, but it's not important. The important that the process has started, which I find very, very interesting. So today we've seen a couple of examples of how to respond and how not to respond. Um, we look at the young servant girl who was obviously in a trial of her own and has responded correctly. We never hear anything more about that servant girl. We'd like in the ideal movie scenario is because she was true to her master and she revealed this truth and eventually got healed and had a revelation of God that he would have said, hey, you're awesome. Thank you so much for being so faithful. Go back to your family. That may have happened. It may not have happened. But I still love the fact that regardless of whether that happened or not, that that servant girl had the right heart and was a genuine servant. I think something changed in Naaman's heart from being a great leader to, to having a servant heart. And I think for us today, the challenge is that we should never expect things. <laughs> we don't have a right to have things. We don't have a right to have certain things. We're in this generation where we believe that it's my right to have this. It's my right to have money. It's my right to have equality. It's my right. We don't have a right. We're sinners. We all fallen short of the glory of God. It's by God's grace, by our Master's grace, that He has bestowed gifts upon us. We talk about the Y Gen, about them actually having a, a sense of expectation. They'll work in a job for a year and they'll expect to be promoted. I've been here a whole year. There's some people. Back several generations ago, they'd be in a job for 10 years and they wouldn't get a promotion. But in this generation, there can be an expectation of, it's owed me, I've done, done that work for a year, I need that. And I think we can be hard on the Y generation because I think deep down we all have those kind of mentalities that we expect that we should be getting more for some reason or another. And that's not how our Lord and Saviour works. The challenge for us is to let God come and dwell in our hearts. He is our master and we are his servants. What type of servant will you choose to be? Will we serve him with everything we are? Will we serve him with everything that we have? Will we serve him when he's not doing what we think he should be doing? Is the Lord God our master, pleased with our service? Are we being obedient to the Master? Are we doing everything He tells us to do? Are we following those leadings or are we pushing them to the back of our minds? These are hard questions that we need to answer. 
and be truthful with ourselves. And in the analogy, or not the analogy, but the story of Naaman going under and somewhat being washed clean of those imperfections, we need to do the same thing spiritually. Could everyone be upstanding? I think today, I'm not going out on a limb saying this, we all have things in our life that have become idols to us. We have things, whether they be pride, whether they be, <laughs> whether they be passiveness, whether it be not responding to leadings that you know God has specifically given you today, which in turn is means that you haven't been a faithful servant on some things with God. And I think today we need to just take a few minutes. We're not going to get people to come out and be prayed for, but I think we need to take a few moments and to reflect on some areas in our lives that we could actually lay down some things and actually genuinely give control over to our master, the person that we say that we serve. So let's close our eyes for a moment. I'm just going to pray and I want you to just sort of let uh, God bring some things to the surface that maybe you need to address with him and start that process today. Lord, we just thank you so much that you have come into our lives and you've saved us. Lord, we thank you that we can serve you. Lord, you know that it's hard. You know that uh, we can become self-orientated so easily within a blink of an eye, Lord. And I just pray that you help us with that day by day and that we come to you as living sacrifices to you, Lord, ready to serve you and not serve our own agendas or not put things on you that we think you should be doing in our lives. Lord, we come before you as servants, Lord, with servant hearts, Lord. May we put aside thoughts of unfairness or, or maybe even regret, regret or angst that we've even had against you, Lord. May we put those at your feet and die to those, Lord. Lord, we also pray for people here today that may not know you, Lord, that need to know you, that need to invite you into their lives to change. For those people who can't do it any longer on their own, under their own strength, they've been doing it their own way and it hasn't been working, Lord. Lord, may they be able to come before you now and just say a prayer and say, Lord, forgive me for doing things my own way. Forgive me of my sin, Lord. I come to you now, Lord, as a servant to you to do your will in my life because... You have the best plan for my life, a better plan than I could ever imagine or understand. Lord, we also pray that for people who do know you, Lord, that, that maybe you're not quite in the centre as much as you were at one point in time that need to come back to centre, Lord. Lord, may we have a fresh revelation of who you are in our lives and, and how we can serve you and, and not being about us and what we can acquire. Lord, we come before you now and open ourselves afresh to you Move in us throughout the week, Lord. May you put your finger on things that we need to address and, and may we address them. We pray this in your name. Amen.